Let's go to the Lord again one more time in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear from him in his word. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have your very words to us. Live by it and listen to it. Pray that even as we give attention now, uh, Lord, that you would um, protect us from pride, protect us from arrogance, protect us from being hard of hearing. Lord, pray for myself, Lord. Words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we pray that both preacher and people would sit under you. Help us, Lord, to hear and to heed your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you live in a fantasy world. Many of us would say, no, I live in the real world. We don't even read fantasy or look at fantasy movies. But have you noticed how much of the supposed real world is presenting fantasy-like promises? I mean, from the advertisements or contracts that promise no strings attached. Because of all the things that's fine print at the bottom of it. Or to the overinflated promise. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Or do you? You only live once. The world we live in is constantly promoting a life devoid of any repercussions or consequences. A life where you can do whatever you want without any pushback or resistance. Friends, I suppose or propose that that kind of life where there's no consequences or repercussions for what you do does not actually exist. Amen. It is a fantasy world. Amen. It is a balloon that's often floated up to keep us looking as it wanders. And I think the Bible means to pop and bring us back to reality. That what you do every single day matters. And if you get that wrong, there will be a day where you will understand how absolutely wrong you are. Friends, that's why we have God's word. So that when we meet God on that final day, we will not be surprised. We need the word of God. And even this morning, we need God's word, word to pop the fantasy world that we're living in. That thinks that we can live however we want without any repercussions. Our passage this morning shows that to be a myth, a fantasy. And God, by his word this morning, needs to bring us back to reality. And so if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis chapter 3, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis very slowly. We're hoping to go through this entire book over the next couple years in different sections. But we'll not go as slowly throughout the entire book, else we will be here for 15 to 20 years. <laughs> but we want to give attention to God's word, and so we've been going slow. If you have a Bible, join me in, in our study through Genesis. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 24. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 3. If you need a Bible uh, of your own, feel free to take that one home with you. If you don't have a Bible, you need one right now, just put your hand up and someone will give you one. Somebody, his sister, Bible there, beautiful, great. 
Anybody else need a Bible? <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. And join me as I read verses 8 through 24. The author Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I, I, I heard the, the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And said, the, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree that I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Woman said, the serpent that deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. The east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We're looking for the main idea of this passage, the main idea of the sermon. This is it. Our sin brings judgment. Our sin brings judgment, but praise God that he graciously provides a way of salvation. Yes. Our sin brings judgment, but praise God, he graciously provides a way of salvation. In our passage last week, we were confronted with Satan's deception of coming to Eve and telling her she would not die. There are no consequences if you eat the fruit of the tree that God had forbidden. 
Well, what the devil promised that he would have said, be like God, turned out to be a deception. The deceiver turned out to deceive. And so Eve ate and found that to be a true reality. And because Satan's MO, his mode of operation has not changed because he's still in the business of deceiving, and because we are still in the business of being deceived, we need to counter his deception with truth. Primarily the truth about God. And so three truths that God is meaning to teach us in this passage to keep us from deception and to lead our hearts to soul allegiance in. Three truths about God that are meaning to pop the balloon of false promises that nothing will happen to us. Number one, these will be the three points of the sermon. Number one, God will confront us. All right. God will confront us. We see that in verses 8 through 13. Number two, God will judge us. God will judge us. We see that in verses nine, uh, 14 through 19. And it's scattered throughout all these verses in different places. Number three, God will save us. Three points. God will confront us. God will judge us. Also, God will save us. First, God will confront us. But not many of us like confrontation, do we? When we resist it, we run from it. And we see that in the opening verse here. We read in verse 8, And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Now, kids, you might have all kinds of questions here. Maybe adults, too. Does God have legs? I thought God was a spirit. How does the Bible say that God walks? Well, God is a spirit. God does not have a body. God will later on in the Bible take on a body as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, adds to himself a human body and does actually walk among us. But that's later and not now. God walking in the garden in the cool of the day or in the evening breeze is figurative species. It symbolizes God's presence being in the garden. It is how God uh, would also talk about his presence being with the children of Israel in places like Leviticus chapter 26 verse 12 that he was right there in the midst of the people walking as it were. It, it, it would not have been an unusual occurrence or something strange for Adam and Eve. As we said before, this garden is something like God's temple, his sanctuary, the place that God has made to dwell in and has invited his people to dwell with them in perfect fellowship. But, but there's a problem here. God's people don't want to be near God. The Lord's presence is there, but they run from him. They seek to hide from him. Friends, see here how deeply sin has affected the first man and the first woman. As soon as their teeth sunk down into that forbidden fruit, everything that was once natural became foreign. Everything that once enjoyed became despised from each other. It's now even God. Remember the last verse we looked at last week in chapter 3, verse 7. They hid themselves from each other, covering their naked body with leaves. And now they hide themselves from God, hiding from his presence among the trees. 
because I see how sin leads us to misuse things, created things, against the creator. The leaves and the trees that God put in the garden to provide food and aesthetic beauty for his created people are now used by his created people, misappropriated, misapplied into shields to distance them from God. They shape leaves into shields to hide their bodies from the God who made them. You see, sin often causes us to use good things for bad purposes. I wonder, have you found yourself doing it? To take wine and alcohol, for example. Things that God created for good. To be consumed and used in moderation. But I wonder if you abuse those things and see. Using them instead to comfort you in your sorrows. Or to calm all your griefs. Or to create some sense of joy. Things that God himself intends to do for you. Yeah. Do you use these created things right. to distance you from and hide you from your creator? Or maybe you sit high and mighty. You don't struggle with wine and alcohol. You don't abuse those things. We'll substitute wine and alcohol for something else. Money, your job, entertainment, recreation. What gifts from God might you be misusing to hide you from him? To not have to face him. To not have to think about him. Good. You might say, I never do that. I don't hide from God. I don't run from him. Are you so sure? Why is it so hard for you to sit in silent solitude before God? To just sit with your thoughts? Why do you have to squeeze out every moment of silence with some music, with some game, with some person, with somebody other than the God himself? That's good, man. Is that not a way, even subtly, of pushing away from his presence? Hiding from him? My friends, what's that show us about yourself? That you actually want to hide from the God who made you to enjoy him. But what's that show you about the nature of sin that wants to run from God? It never works. You know why? Because God won't let it work. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, Oh Lord, you have searched and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Where, he asked, shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? You can't. The omnipresent, omnipotent God will let you. Notice here that with all of Adam and Eve's efforts to hide, God seeks and God finds. He confronts the man, Adam, in verse 9 and calls out to him, where are you? It's not a question of ignorance, as if God don't know. (laughs) He knows all things. He just said he searches all the hearts. No, it's a question meant to question Adam's actions and to call out his changed condition. Why are you suddenly hiding when I'm around? You know, why you suddenly close the laptop when I come into the room? Why you quickly press the side button on your phone to black out the screen when I walk up behind you? Adam, where are you? 
You, you usually welcome me being, being around. You used to run when I come into your presence. Why are you hiding from me now? But what, what, what's changed? But what's going on with you? Notice here how God first goes to the man. Remember, Satan tried to subvert God's order. He went to the woman first to tempt her into sinning. But God goes straight to the man. Why? Because he was supposed to be the head. He had a job to do, to guard the garden, to protect his wife. He was supposed to lead and protect her. He failed to do that. And now this man is hiding behind the bushes. But God don't beat around the bush. He goes straight to the man and comes directly asking him, where are you? Show yourself to be a man. Adam responds in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The nakedness wasn't a problem back in chapter 2. All right. We read there in chapter 2, verse 25, that the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. But now after sin, shame fills man before his wife and fear fills man before his God. And not the kind of reverential fear you read in the Bible, fear of the Lord. No, this is a, a fearing God for the first time as, as an enemy, as a foe. And what strikes fear in Adam before God is the fact that he's naked, exposed before God. He doesn't mention why he now feels exposed. What's the cause of this new feeling that he actually disobeyed God? Instead, he focuses only on his subjective feelings, divorced from his actions that brought about these feelings, and devoid of any responsibility for those actions. How should Adam have answered God? When God asked, Adam, where are you? Adam should have brought it out. Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done. Lord, I've rebelled against you. I've broken your commands. I've, I've, I've sought to be you and knock you off of your throne. I, I know that now to be a silly, foolish, sinful plight and ambition. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? Actually, that God shouldn't have even had to, to seek out Adam to, to bring it up. Adam should have felt that immediately after he had sinned. But again, sin doesn't want to see God. Doesn't want to face God. Doesn't want to seek God. But God sees us. All right. And even in asking Adam a question, he gives room for confession. He gives room for repentance. God asking these questions is laying out all these opportunities. You have failed to come to me on your own when you first sinned, so I'm coming to you, giving you opportunity to confess it. He leaves room for confession, but there's no room in Adam's heart for any of that. Only room to sidestep what he's done. And yet, God keeps confronting. God keeps seeking. God keeps interrogating. And so he asks in verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Okay, now surely Adam will burst into confession before God's confrontation. I mean, God asked him pointedly now about his rebellion. Surely God knows I cannot hide from him. I've got to fess up. Surely, verse 12 then is about to be Adam's version of Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly for my iniquity, O Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. You see, when we sin and we are, when we are confronted with our sin in the presence of a holy God, that ought to be our posture, confession. 
It's like what Chris read us in with earlier, confession. But often our posture is what we see in verses 12 and 13, passing the buck and the blame onto others. Let's look at verse 12. That's a God's continuing questioning. Adam says, the, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Oh, what a coward Adam shows himself here to be. The woman whom God gave him to protect. He now pushes forward to be killed. Remember God promised back in chapter 2 verse 17 that in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And now confronted with the holy and righteous God of all the earth and put on trial, Adam basically says, kill her. It's Eve's fault. She gave me the fruit, and I just happened to eat it. Oh, what a far, far from Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. When at the first sight of Eve, Adam opened up his mouth in praise. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman. He was dancing when he saw Eve. Now to hell with her. Literally. To save himself, he's willing to sacrifice even his own wife. But what a far cry from the true and the better act. Who to save his bride, the church, sacrifice his own life. But Adam blames his bride. And not only that, did you notice that he blames God as well? Eve is the one, verse 12, whom you gave to be with me, God. I'd ask for her. That was your choice. I was cool. No matter that the text tells us that Adam was seeking a companion fit for him, and that Eve was a precious gift from God for him, no, now the gift and the gift giver are problematic. The fault lies with them, not with me. Does that sound familiar? Confronted with God and his word as it relates to your sexual sin. The problem ain't with you, but with others. She shouldn't have been selling her body. Or showing all her body. And he shouldn't have been flirting with me. He know I like attention. God, if you would have just given me a godly spouse who paid me attention and who talks to me, I wouldn't have had to do this. As a matter of fact, you, the one who gave me these sexual desires, is your fault. Or if he wouldn't have made me angry. <laughs> if she wouldn't have hit me sideways, I wouldn't have to go off on him. Lord, you know I'm hot-blooded. <laughs> You're the one gave me this red hot blood. Like us, Adam cast blank. Yes. Instead of confessing. He cowers instead of covering his wife. Instead of taking the hit for her. And Eve is no better. After Adam trying to shift blame, God confronts Eve in verse 13. He says to her, what is this that you have done? She too must give an account. Surely by now, Eve has learned from her husband's bad example. Surely she's going to break out in confession. But she blame shifts as well. Sin is like a hot potato that everybody is trying to pass along and no one is willing to own. Eve says in verse 13, the serpent 
The serpent is his fault. He deceived me and I ain't. Now that's true. The serpent did deceive Eve. Eve was deceived by the serpent, but that did not dismiss her from standing trial before God. It didn't justify her actions. Yes, the serpent deceived, but Eve ate. The former doesn't discount the latter. But that's what we often try to do, don't we? But we try to downplay our involvement because it wasn't intentional. We were tricked. Look, I, I know it's clicking on the app, it's going to take me there. My classmate told me the teacher didn't care if we looked for the answers to the test on our phone. She lied to me. Not my fault, theirs. It's so prevalent, so pervasive, so poisonous, so us. <laughs> Young people, I wonder, do you find yourself with this posture when you're confronted with something that you know you've done wrong? When teachers or parents confront you, do you counter with confession or by transferring blames to somebody else? <laughs> will you try the same thing with God who knows all that you've done wrong? Will you accuse him of wrong instead, or will you try to throw him off your trail by throwing others under the bus? That is not a good thing to do. That is a cowardly thing to do. Young people, develop even now a conviction to own your sins. Develop even now a conviction to own your wrongs, to be accountable for what you have done. Age will not automatically drive it out of you. No, habits practiced now will only deepen and grow, and you will become an adult who so many of us know who are unaccountable for anything they've done wrong. They always blame somebody else. His fault, her fault, the system's fault. It's never your fault, is it? It lays birth with you. Develop a conviction to own your own sins. Amen. That's a word not just for young people. All right. But for all of us. And none of us trying to own what we did. But God will hold all of us accountable for what we've done. There is nothing done in secret that he does not see. There's nothing that we've done that others have initiated that would excuse us. There's no place that we can flee to to hide from his presence. Friends, on the other side of every single sin, we will meet God. God will confront us. And worse, when he does, Point number two, God will judge us. Our second point, God will judge us. Worse than mere confrontation is condemnation at the hands of a holy God. Notice how the Lord moves from questioning his people in verses 9 through 13 to laying down judgment on all the guilty parties in verses 14 through 19. And notice here in these verses, there's, there's no discussion. There's no back and forth dialogue as in the previous verses. This is no answer, a question and answer session. 
And now the time for talking is over. This is God's unilateral judgment and sentence. It reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, of the future and final day of judgment of God, where Paul says that every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be accountable to God. Friends, if you got in your mind some idea of maybe you'll meet God in judgment and maybe there's going to be this kind of back and forth, he reading off everything you've done and you give the kind of counter argument to everything. Think again. It's going to be a unilateral judgment. You will sit there silently as you realize he knows every single thing. He's reading off every single sinful thing you've ever thought and never said and never done and ready to pour out his wrath on every single one of those 33 million things. God starts here. Judgment. In verse 14, with the snake that started it all. The serpent, the devil. God tells him, because you have done this, done what Eve just accused him of doing, deceiving her to sin, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And the, the serpent, who in chapter 3, verse 1, was identified as more crafty, is now acknowledged as being more cursed. He was too crafty to be found out and denied by the woman Eve, but not too crafty for God. He's cursed for his actions forever. And consigned forever to abject humiliation, moving on his belly all his days, eating dust, which in the Bible is a sign of shame and contempt and defeat. Until he's ultimately crushed. Verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, that description moves beyond just the animal that Satan inhabited, the snake, but the Satan himself being cursed and judged. There is a separation that will happen. Oh, While well, Satan may have thought that in getting Eve to rebel against God, that he was recruiting humans forever to join him and do his bidding. God says he's going to break things up. Uh, he will put enmity or hatred between the woman and Satan, between his offspring and hers, and the woman's offspring would squash the serpent's head, deliver the full and final death blow. Satan may have beat Eve and then Adam into submission to sin, but he will not forever be victorious. His curse is that he will be crushed, which we'll explore in a few moments. But for all this is, is important to note. Because I think when we think about Satan, we can think that he's a free agent. Almost like God's equivalent, only the evil counterpart. And that Satan's out doing his own thing free, without any restraints and without any repercussions. We need to understand what the Bible says about Satan. He is not God's equal. He is under God. And not only that, he is under God's judgment. The devil cannot and will not win. Amen. God will. Amen. And from Satan, the Lord moves to judge the woman he tempted to sin. He, he says in verse 16, I will surely multiply your 
pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire be contrary to your husband, but but he shall rule over you. And notice here the, the twofold judgment. First, the childbirthing process will be a, a painful experience. The idea here is, is not just physical pain, as you sisters who've given birth will know very well, but also includes the mental, emotional pain of trying to bear children that many of you who've been trying to conceive for months and years will know very well. Infertility, miscarriages, stillborns are ultimately a result of the fall. Judgment for sin. And not your individual sin necessarily every time, but, but part of God's judgment upon the human race. Inflicted here, even at the very beginning, upon the first woman. Not only will there be, will, will there be pain in trying to have children, there will also be problems in the marriage. God says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Remember, he was made to be Adam's helper, as we read about in chapter 2. He was to lead, and she was to submit to his leadership. Not as an inferior being, but as his perfect complement and companion. They were to be partners and teammates, each with their distinct roles. But as we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 3, those roles got switched. Eve was the one instead leading out making decisions for the couple with Adam being a passive bystander. Well, here God says that because of her sin, Eve and Adam's relationship and all future marital relationships between men and women would be affected. A natural inclination and a temptation for wives would be to not submit to their husbands. To not listen to, to not respect their husbands, but rather to take the leadership mantle from them. And probably to feel justified in doing so. I mean, consider Eve's potential rationale here, her reasoning. She'd seen her husband neglect his job of leading them. And how it led to horrible sin. Then she'd seen him totally punk out and sell her out to save himself. A natural instinct for the rest of her life would be to disrespect this old weak man in front of me and oppose any supposed authority that he might try to claim. And in response, husband would try to reclaim his authority, but in a harsh way. Try to rule over his wife, being domineering, overbearing, barking orders like he's talking to a dog and not to a fellow image bearer. And he feel justified in doing so. I mean, is she disrespectful? I'm going to be disrespectful. Not understanding that two wrongs never make a All right. Friends, we see here the disastrous effects of what happens when we break the vertical relationship with God. Every single horizontal relationship goes haywire. You ain't going to have a good marriage without the good relationship with God. That's right. You ain't going to have good friendships without a good relationship with God. When you wonder why things are wrong, look first up and not sideways. Yes, sir. Well, Since marital conflict is a result of the fall. Instead of harmony, 
husband and wife rebel against their natural, God-given distinctive roles and responsibilities in marriage. Sometimes I wonder how these verses challenge the intuitive spirit of feminine fighting against any idea of submission that so permeates our culture. Where wives are encouraged to never give in to some patriarchal notion of submitting to their husbands. But to think of their empowerment over them. Their freedom from them. And so you don't need to listen to no man, honor no man. No, you buck back. You bark back. You do what you want, girl. Can't no man tell you what to do. You a boss lady. Embrace that. And conversely, men are encouraged to finally stand up and be real men with all the bravado and brashness that that entails. To lead loud and put their wives in their place, even if it means you gotta beat her down with your hands or with your words. To make her respect you. To throw your weight around and so she finally knows who's really in control and who's really the boss. So friends, I'll just say that those moves and mantras that are so celebrated in our society are actually a sign of God's judgment. It sadly shows how far we have fallen that we pursue and praise the things that are actually punishments. How sick our souls are that we boast about our brokenness. How sick our souls are that we lick lollipops of poison and laugh about it. What is that? Judgments. Disordered marriages. Distorted thoughts about what it means to be a husband and wife in marriage are a part of God's judgment. The final judgment is handed down to the man in verses 17 through 19 as God approaches Adam. God tells him in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. To dust you shall return. I notice how Adam's rebellion is, is recounted to him. Which is the cause for all this chaos. Because you have listened to your wife. And if you had a pen, maybe you put a little kind of bracket right there in your Bible and insert instead of listening to me. All right. Mm. All right. Uh, husbands, this is not some kind of proof text verse that you should never listen to your wife. <laughs> no, often your wife gives wonderful wisdom that you need to listen to. Right? It's not that. No, the problem here is that Adam listened to his wife instead of listening to God. Adam's passivity is punctuated. He sat by and let Eve pass him the fruit and convince him it's okay to eat. Instead of standing up and saying, no, darling, God said we cannot eat of this. To appease her, he displeased God. 
Saints, that is never the right decision. All right. Our constant heartbeat has to be, we must obey God rather than men or women, no matter who they are. Uh, wives, if your husband is using, using his role of leadership to lead you into sin, you are not obligated to submit. You need to tell him nothing. Sisters, if you are in a marriage even now to a man who's calling himself a Christian or not, and he's causing you or calling you to do something that is sinful, come tell your elders. You should not do that thing. You should rather obey God rather than your husband. Right? Well, with anything, our ultimate authority is the Lord. Adam wouldn't be a good husband by being accommodating to his wife. No, Adam was being a rebellious husband, wrecking not only his relationship with his wife, but also his relationship with his Lord. Adam wasn't tricked. Adam wasn't deceived by either Eve or Satan. And said, Adam knowingly, intentionally, deliberately rebelled against his God. He was the representative head for all humanity as the first man whom God created to be in a relationship with him, whom God created to rightly represent him and to reflect his rule over all the creation. He had it sweet, but he wanted it even sweeter. He didn't want to be under God. He wanted to be God. In rebelling, he brought sin into the world and its judgment upon every single person born from Adam, including you and me. The first judgment handed down was that work would be a grind, a painful toil all the days of your life. We read in chapter 1, work was created before the fall as a good thing, but affected by sin, it would be forever frustrating and often futile. The land that Adam was to work would no longer be plush and yield readily. Instead, it would be filled with thorns and thistles. Adam would have to work hard and sweat and have blistered hands to make it produce. Life would be incredibly hard and bitter. And it would be that way all the way up until he died. When the one taken from the ground returned to the ground. Here then is the greater judgment. Death. Adam would indeed die. Now, death is so common in our day that we hardly even understand it to be a judgment. Sad, yes, but a sad reality of life, uh, how things have always been. But friends, understand we were not made to die. We were made to live with God and enjoy him forever. Death is our enemy. Amen. Death is a consequence for our rebellion. The penalty for sin yeah. is death. Yeah. And because Adam sinned, he will die. And because he is our head, his sin is passed down to all of us. And so we all die as well. Chris read that for us earlier from Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, as, as one, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sins. Adam's sin and guilt has spread to every single one of us like a curse, right along with God's judgment of sin, death. 
Again, the penalty of sin is death, always. There was an immediate spiritual death that Adam and Eve immediately felt, distancing themselves from God, not wanting him to be around. And there was a literal, physical death. Remember Satan's promise? If you eat of the tree, you will be like God. How terribly wrong he was. God reminds man here in judging him just how unlike God he is. You came from dust, and to dust you're returning. You, you will never be God. You're just a man. And because of our sin, we will forever be separated from God. Which we see at the end of this chapter as Adam and Eve are driven out of the Garden of Eden, out of God's presence as a form judgment. Friends, all our sin will bring his judgment. Why must he judge? Because he is good and he is holy and he is righteous. And just as a good judge must judge wrong, so God must judge evil and sin. Which is comforting on one hand. There is no evil that's ever committed that will go unchecked. God will judge every evildoer bad part that includes us God will judge us because of the evil that we have done that will be eternally terrifying and demoralizing if not for our third and final that God will, will save us God will save us so in this passage God sprinkles incredible dashes of hope even as he doles out judgment. Indeed, his plans, amazingly, are to save even through judgment. Let me look again at verse 15. Right in the middle of judging the serpent Satan, God gives a promise that he would put enmity or hatred between Satan and the woman, and more specifically between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. God could have decided here to group all the rebels together, Satan and all humanity, and forever cast us off as his enemies. To eternally judge us all the same at the same time, he could have consigned all of us to eternal hell right here and there at this very moment. We all deserved it. All for our rebellion against God. We are no different from Satan. We did the same thing he did. We rebelled against God. Instead, he promised that the woman would live long enough to give birth. And instead of casting all humanity as his enemy, he would make some of humanity to live for him and fight against his first enemy, Satan. He identifies it here as the woman's offspring or seed. But who is this seed? This offspring of the woman? Well, notice how the end of verse 15 narrows it down not to every human who'd ever come from the woman, but to a singular man, he. This offspring, he will bruise, or better, crush the serpent's head, fully and finally defeat him while the serpent will strike a heel blow. We'll see as we study Genesis. Everyone following this promise is looking for who that man might be. Who would crush the enemy of God and his people Satan and deliver us from his power. For thousands of years, the question went unanswered. 
as every man born from woman in one way or another did just what Adam did, joined with Satan in his rebellion against God. Every single man born from woman sinned until in God's timing, his plan was realized. We read about it in our call to worship in Galatians 4. It tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born a woman, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world, born through the Virgin Mary, to live the perfect life that Adam and Eve should have lived, that we should have lived, and then to die the death for our sins that we deserve to die. But his death was not final, as everyone else's was. His death was only a heel bruise, something he could come back from. Because three days after he died, Jesus Christ rose up from the grave victorious, showing that his death was sufficient payment for all the sins of all those who would turn from their sins and put their trust in him. Yes. All who did so will be freed from the bondage to Satan. From the bondage to Satan. From the bondage to death. And have eternal life. Listen to how the Bible describes Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death he destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 says that he canceled the entire record of debt that stood against us with all of his legal demands. This he, he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And then he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame yes. by triumphing over them. Satan was defeated at the cross of Christ. Yes, the serpent still roams, but he has been defamed. All right. And soon, he will be ultimately judged to eternal fire. Which is how Paul comforts the church in Rome. And by extension us in Romans 16, verse 20. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus Christ is the head crusher of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Whom God promised to send to deal with our forever enemy and save us for himself. By God's own initiative and free will, he chose not only to judge us, but to save us through the judgment of his own son, who died and rose again for us. And we see a preview not only here in verse 15, but later in this passage. In verse 21, we read that God made garments of skin and clothed Adam and Eve. In their sin and shame, they sought to clothe themselves with leaves. But God taught them that their clothing was insufficient. They needed a better covering, a more lasting covering, and only he could provide it. And so he gives them skins 
literally skins of animals to clothe them. Which means, friends, that he killed an animal to provide for them. The Israelites, the original recipients of this book, would have immediately thought, that's what God has done for us as well. So they would have thought about the sacrificial system that God set up, whereby the death of a perfect animal, a spotless lamb, would atone for or literally cover their sins. But ultimately, the Bible tells us that the blood of bulls or goats could never truly accomplish that purpose. And so God sent his son, the perfect lamb of God, to be killed. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he laid down his life once and for all. And his blood, the precious blood of Christ, truly covers, truly atones for every single one of our sins, past, present, and future. So that when God sees those of us who trust in Christ, he no longer sees amazingly the shame and the guilt of our sins lying naked before him. He no longer sees our weak excuses, our little flimsy leaves in front of him trying to excuse ourselves. He instead sees the blood of his son covering, washing away all our sins. He only sees the covering of his perfect righteousness applied to us. With all those 33 million sins we've committed, when God sees us through Christ, he says none. Sinless, spotless, perfect, welcome, my beloved son of God. No, he sees us covered in the sacrifice he's provided. He sees us covered in the righteousness of Christ, and amazingly, he doesn't punish, he's pleased with us. Signs of God's salvation, even here in heaven. We see it again in the closing verses of this passage. God determines to send Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they don't partake of the tree of life and live forever in a miserable condition. He guards the garden with cherubim and a flaming sword so they can never partake of the tree of life. There's judgment here, driven away from God. Separation from him is judgment, but there's also salvation. God mercifully didn't want them to live forever in a fallen state. He prevented them from the tree of life of cherubim. That was judgment and mercy, although it seemed like only misery if the story ended there. With man and woman kicked out of God's presence with no access to him and eternal life. But even way back here, God intended to save us and give us eternal life. And again, he was planning to do it through his son. You see, the cherubim that stood here at the entrance of the garden would also stand in Israel's tabernacle and temple at the entrance of the most holy place, guarding the access to the presence of God. There was a thick curtain that dropped from the, 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 the heavens, as it seemed, a 40-foot curtain that dropped down that was engraved with cherubim all on it, reminding man that you are cut off from the presence of God forever. That same curtain stood in the temple for centuries, separating man and God, until the day the Son of God died. But he died on the cross to reconcile us to God. Matthew 27 tells us that when Jesus gave up his last breath, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was God's decision. All right. 
opening up access to God and the way of life through the death of the Son. Nothing that is then keeping us from God and eternal life, but our own inherent depravity and evil, our own unwillingness to come to Christ, through Christ, to be saved. In Him, and Him alone, we have free access to God. In Him and Him alone, we have freedom from sin and Satan and from death. And in Him and through Him alone, we have eternal life. Uh, friends, if you read this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, if you are still separating from Him, would you turn from your sins this morning and trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ? I wonder if you hear the Lord talking to you this morning, asking you the same thing, where are you? Don't fool yourself into thinking you're closer to God than you actually are. He knows the answer better than you know yourself. He asks, where are you? And he doesn't wait for you to come closer to him. He's come close to you. Heaven seeks sinners with the salvation of sinners to the Son. Turn from your sins this morning and trust in Jesus. You need to talk more with somebody about what that's like with you, whether you're an adult or a child, teenager, talk somebody around you Leave the door after we'd love to talk with you about how you might come to know Jesus today. God didn't owe any of us. None of us are owed mercy. All of us are owed misery because we've all sinned miserably. And all our sin brings you. But praise God. That He graciously provides a way of salvation. In the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Embrace him. Enjoy him. And live for and through him. Both today and forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you, Lord. That though our sins are many, your mercy is more. Thank you for the mercy you've shown us in Jesus. Our Lord, that even... The just God who must punish sin. You promised to send your son and actually did send your son. And you punished him in our place so that we might be saved. Lord, we thank you that you are not only our creator, but you're also our redeemer. And Lord, we give you praise for who you are and what you do. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to you even more. Even more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.